Today, would you open your Bible to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew? And uh, we've, we've, met, we've met at the table of the Lord. Um, we, have, we have met, as, as I think of this, again, back in terms of the Lord's table and his invitation, that Jesus is the host at the table. There's, a, there's an older, kind of a folk-type worship song that we used to sing some years ago uh, entitled, God and Man at Table Are Sat Down, and that it speaks about this, this feast of the Lord's giving of his, of his blood and His body and the invitation that we have shared today to put your total trust in Him for these elements and what they mean. And I'm always reminded that as we turn to Matthew 18, that He was showing them what would be a timeless fact for all of us as we gather as we did today, that Jesus Christ himself personally is the host at the table. He is the one who invited us here. So when we shared that verse earlier to freely give what we freely received, it takes on a very special dimension in the parable of Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 20 and going through verse 35. And the background for that parable, or the purpose for the parable, clearly is a, a new way, a, a helpful way for us to see the meaning of what we just read a few minutes ago. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God our Father through Christ Jesus, has forgiven you. And so I think of this parable, Matthew 18, 20 through 35, uh, as, as a prayer-igniting parable. So we have one prayer that we've shared already about, in a way, how can I, how can I get over that inner uncertainty that is a real part? Everybody's life. How can I pray in a way that I know my prayer is 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 aimed and and I didn't say earlier, but I think another benefit of starting with a scriptural prayer is that your own prayer then flows out of that. You begin to pray the word of God, and uh, three section is only one example. There's so many ways we can take something and pray the word of God, and then the Holy Spirit is is igniting to flow in our hearts and our lives. Now, of course, the most beloved and well-known of all the biblically printed prayers would be the one that has at its very heart, what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Pray it with me. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the reason Jesus gave this parable. And we begin at verse 20, instead of verse 18, as I put here, just for the moment. Again, I tell you that... If two of you, on verse 19, excuse me, again I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, 
it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? <laughs> Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but count them, 77. Exactly, right? <laughs> no, you, you. Here's a beautiful example in Scripture of Jesus using a figure of speech. He, Jesus, people forget that master teacher that he was, Jesus used intentionally dramatic grammatical devices to both wake up his and to embed sometimes a serendipitous truth, something they, that would not have naturally come to mind. Seventy times seven is, a, is an idiom in, in the language of Jesus that for us can be taken as endless, an infinite expression of, an expression of the infinite reach of the grace of God. However, if you go back to the conversation, the conversation reflects such a moving and simple insight into the human dilemma that we face. We might chuckle a little bit at Peter's somewhat unguarded honesty, but isn't it refreshing that the Bible gives us this conversation? Because it shows us that Peter is Somehow in his wheels are turning. Who knows what he was thinking about a particular situation. Or maybe he was just thinking in theoretically, how many times would I need to forgive? And he's grasping something about this issue of forgiveness that every human deals with at some point in our life. We all know, honestly, there are some situations that are pretty easy to forgive, aren't they? they something happens you didn't like it. It wasn't your. It wasn't benefit, but you forgive it and you move on. How, how many of you know there are lots of those situations in life? Isn't that right? Okay, but isn't the, is it all? Isn't it also true that another thing we all have in common with Peter is we've all had situations where somebody hurt us, wounded us, offended us, crossed our line in a way that is not easy to get over. And and in fact may severely test what we believe and know about love as the goal of a Christian life. So, Peter's asking a good question. And the, the parable brings us into a scene that, again, uses a dramatic way of showing us how deeply we've been forgiven and how life-giving it is for us to be active forgivers. So I'm reading it from the New International Version at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay... 
The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and that all he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. <laughs> that's, that's something, isn't it? Note the last words of the chapter. The last three words, say them aloud with me. From your heart. Here's, a, here's an astounding and soul-stirring mandate from the Master. You and I have been tasked to be lifelong forgivers. And sometimes it's... Let's, let's grant that. Sometimes it's not, doesn't seem like that's, in fact, sometimes I've stood in services where the Lord's, we're praying the Lord's Prayer, and I've thought, times we miss, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we can easily fall into the trap of trivializing that. We nod our heads and we think, oh yes, of course, of course, of course, forgive our debts as we forgive our, our debtors, of course. We take it in stride, in other words. And sometimes in life, it does happen in a way that we feel like it's kind of like water off a duck's back, so to speak. But there are those, and everyone in this sanctuary today knows, there are those moments. There are those individuals. There are those circumstances that bring us to the place that either and not verbally, but in principle, we could do what Peter did with a question. Lord, how many times am I required to give this release of another for their wrong toward me? How many times should I forgive my brother? A simple definition of forgiving, by the way, helpful I think, is just the simple understanding as in a judicial or law enforcement context, dropping the charges. 
what do I do when I forgive someone who has harmed me? In my mind and in my heart, the Lord is saying, drop the charges. Just drop the charges. Consider that person free of obligation toward you. But Peter's question aims at another issue, doesn't it? What about, Lord, what about the repetitive offense? Oh, oh, it's one thing, somebody, they hurt me, they disappointed me, they, they crossed, they, they injured me either uh, emotionally or in terms of um, stealing from me or violating my confidence or betraying me or backstabbing me or gossiping about me. Am I in the right audience today? Have you been there on the receiving end? And, and if it happened once and that person, and you forgave them, and it happened again, and later maybe, maybe two, three years went by, maybe five years went by, maybe it's a family member that for a, a season it looks like everything is really kind of good, and then something comes up and they blow your mind with some completely rude, disrespectful behavior. And it's not the first time, <laughs> right? And you know, you know, chances are it's going to happen again. I think maybe it helps us climb into the question of Peter a little bit. <laughs> How many times, Lord? How many times? And I, and I, I, I see his answer. I see the, the first part of the answer before he tells the story as a kind of a way of reframing for Peter how you look at the injuries of our soul. That is, put a new frame on it, like you, you take a picture down, and you, or, or you have a picture that's in a certain spot, and you put it in a new frame, and you put it in a different place on a wall or in some display, and you kind of you see that with new eyes. And, and Jesus did this a lot in his parables. We, we already have seen a couple of examples of that. But this one I think is telling because this one on the, on, the, on the high vista of our life, as we look across the landscape of life, we know there are often no more difficult obstacles to overcome than when there is a genuinely hurtful, seriously painful, violation of our trust that in our minds is hard to get over. And it is a common real life experience so that when Jesus said seven times, Peter, <laughs> that might seven times forgiving that repetitive offense might, might exhaust the grace resources of the human mind, some people wouldn't even make it to seven, frankly, but it would exhaust many people's reserves of grace, wouldn't it, right? But Jesus is saying, no, don't stop at seven, Peter, and don't, don't stop at 70 or 71 or 72, and don't stop at 70 times seven, don't stop at 490 times. Now, 
Jesus is intentionally using a figure of speech. In literary terms, it's hyperbole on purpose. He uses hyperbole on purpose. Parables, not only to grab our attention, which it does, but to jog our our brain into thinking anew about an old problem. And even more than that, the way the parable teases our brain into thought is that the parable, a very simple story, redirects our mind toward a truth that's beyond our human capacity. The one thing I love best about this parable is that it taps us on the shoulder as if to say, you're probably a pretty good forgiver sometimes. And and yeah, forgiving sometimes works out good for you, but you don't have what it takes to be the kind of forgiver that Jesus is going to make you. This parable is a reframing of how I see the capacity of my own heart. And say, I can't take pride even when I do forgive. Isaiah 42, 7, the Lord said through Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. Paul applied that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to this realm of grace by saying that God the Father chose to place us, the redeemed, in Christ, giving us the gift of sanctification, redemption, and forgiveness so that no flesh would ever glory in his presence. Modern translations give us in 1 Corinthians 1.31 this statement that no one will ever be able to boast in the presence of God. The presence of Almighty God is a boasting zone. It's a place where we have met our incapacity face to face. We have come to the brick wall of our human inability. We have often crashed and smashed and found ourselves flat on our faces. And there we met our living Savior the author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus. In other words, this simple story about the king going away to a far country, coming back to call his servants to account, finding one servant who owes him a great debt, and the servant pleads, Oh, please, give me time, and I will pay you. And Jesus uses this as a window into many hurtful experiences that we all have been through in life. Think of it like this. How many ways can you get hurt? (laughs) How many ways can you find yourself feeling rightly at odds? I say rightly because I have a cause for my anger. I've sat with folks that are great people. 
But oh, they have got a bitterness burden that lives vibrantly in their soul. And they will quickly tell you about it. And, and Jesus tenderly reaches into the vulnerable parts of our lives to show us the shepherd's grasp, to lead us to green pastures and beside still waters, and to let us feast at his table in the presence of our enemies. But first, to get us there, he often has to jolt us out of self-sufficiency. He has to break our dependence on the dopamine rush of self-righteousness. And this parable pierces right into that category of the heart. The dramatic contrast that we'll see here is everybody has had some experience of being deeply offended. Most of us could think of a situation where we've been betrayed. I remember a situation where an insult struck me in a way. Three weeks later, I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was, it was burning into my, into my, my soul. You've been, some of you have been there. And, and what is so astounding is when we look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we see what He bore for us, the Bible is showing us we've got to get a dramatic contrast to see that real forgiving can only happen in a heart that has been set free from depending on itself. This beautiful parable, ending on a very stern note, is aimed at showing us that Christ, the risen King, does indeed transform common, ordinary people into extraordinary forgivers. But in order to get there, we have to understand some key points of His empathy with us. Now, let's look at the contrast first, and then I want to show you that, con- that, that empathy first. Let's think about the story itself. If you look at chapter 18 of Matthew, and you, you, go, to that, you go to that 23rd verse, the king wanted to settle accounts with his servant, and he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. There have been attempts through the years to try to quantify those talents, of course, and uh, that was a unit of measurement that most scholars believe would be the equivalent of about 375 tons of silver. I just took Friday's spot price of silver in current terms, and that would bring it out to the, the debt that this first servant owed to the king in, in, in equivalent dollars of today would be $259,431,570. In other words, he, he ain't going to be paying that off anytime soon. <laughs> the Athenians, in the time, in, in the 5th century B.C., the Athenian king was looking for a way to repair a, a, a battleship that had been damaged in, in a conflict. 
and the Athenians paid one talent to repair a big ship and then paid two talents to buy an entirely new ship and have it built. That gives sense of the proportion of a talent. So, so for, for the Lord in this, in this parable to explain to people, why is it that seven times forgiving doesn't do the trick? Why is it that seven, 490 is not going to do the trick? Because you're looking at it the wrong way, Peter. You're looking at it as something that humanly could be done. And it's, it's one of the reasons bitterness grows in people's hearts, because they say, probably truthfully, I have forgiven. I have tried to forgive. <laughs> I've tried to be nice to this person. <laughs> Amen? I've, I've gone been over backwards. They took me to the cleaners. I didn't make them pay me back. You know, <laughs> we've all been there in some situation. You've been disappointed. You've been hurt. You did your best to deal with it. But this wonderful Matthew 18 parable is saying, your best is not good enough because what the Lord wants to introduce you to is a capacity for forgiving that comes from direct communication with the living King. Christ himself gives us grace to go beyond what we would do naturally, but he does it by showing us how deeply he cares for you, and he does it by showing us that he is in charge of settling all outstanding accounts. So, first of all, this first servant who is going to be put into the prison for his whole family is going to suffer for his debt, and he pleads with the king, oh, give me time to pay you all. And what's amazing is the king knows he can't ever pay him back. And yet, because he is pleading for mercy, the king says, you can go free. The debt is now released. I'm dropping the charges. You're free. Now, we would think, and, and, and naturally thinking, wouldn't it just be logical that that guy goes out and another person in his life owns, owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius is a Roman coin that usually equivalent was a typical labor's day's wages for a regular manual labor. So pretty, pretty significant debt. You could say a hundred days of labor. Let's say, let's say, a, good, let's say a good chunk of about three and a half months of labor, so it's, it's a pretty substantial offense between the two, but nothing like, not doesn't even begin to approach the debt that he's already been forgiven of by the king. And, and the labor is, is intense in, in verse 28, verse, he grabbed him and began to choke the other guy, pay me back what you owe me. Verse 29 of Matthew 18, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, oh, be patient with me, I will pay you back. What's so striking is that's exactly the same words, the very quote of this guy to the king. Please be patient with me, and I will pay you back. Verse 30 says, but he refused. 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Of course, it was a common thing in those days, a debtor's prison. So what we have is, is a contrast really aimed at bringing us to that face-to-face with that sense that, of course, none of us can forgive well or go free apart from the awesome, redeeming grace of Christ. And the parable itself mirrors on the other, the two parables two weeks ago in the, the wheat and the tares last week, in that the Lord is basically saying that eternal life doesn't start when we die. The parables of Jesus in Matthew bring us, bring the reality of eternity like, like a wave crashing on the shore of our life right to our feet so that it becomes clear in the parables we're already living in the eternal realm. When Christ has come into our heart, made you an eternal being, you are a child of God, you have a future in eternity. One day when this physical body dies, when the earth suit has finished its purpose, we're going to be out of here and we're in. The fact is, we're already sons and daughters of the living God. So Jesus is giving these disciples equipment so that after his resurrection, they'll begin to understand what it is to live in the Christ life, to live of the Christ life, to be aware that there is a daily living relationship with our Savior. I think these three essentials are a good way to put together what this parable brings us. We need to know what's required of us. We need to know what is supplied for us. And we do need assurance in those toughest of cases. So first, what is required of us is, as we read earlier, to be kind to one another. Read it aloud with me. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, through Christ Jesus, has forgiven you. Excuse me, let me read that quote exactly as I have it there. Forgiving each other, read it with me, just as God our Father, through Christ Jesus, has forgiven you. So that text gives us the verb form of gracing. How can I grace someone well? So the, the, what is required of us first is accept that the Lord's Prayer gives us a window into why we need the Lord every day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors would be impossible to the human soul. Not that we couldn't do it once. Not that we couldn't do it twice. Maybe we could do it seven times. Maybe eight or nine times. (laughs) But we're going to run out of grace fuel. Unless we say, no, I've got to look at it this way. I want to bring this whole situation to the Lord active. And that's what is supplied for us. What is supplied for us to do this? A great, a great example of it is, is Hebrews 4, 16, where the Bible says, let us bring our needs before the throne of grace to the Lord himself, who is the great high priest. Why? Because he was affected by, in every way, by the same infirmities and hurts that we've experienced. So when we pray, we come to the priest 
who stands there receiving our pain. Now, one reason I'm sharing all this with you is that we all know situations where the hurt runs so deep that a person to bring that to the Lord needs to know this, that indeed your high priest, the Lord Jesus, has fully absorbed all of the insults. You take the worst sting, the worst hurt, somebody that did something to you that was just so outrageous, or to your loved one, your family member, and you look at it and you say, I know that person will never realize what they did, or they will never admit it. Again, some honesty. How many of you know there are some, how many have known somebody, you know, unless an absolute miracle, they're never going to turn around and acknowledge it. Isn't that right? Okay, so if forgiving well and getting free and living free, if it depended on other people to do their part, we're, we're sunk. But if it depends on the great high priest who's been touched with the worst kinds of insults, no one who's ever existed deserved more honor and glory and praise and adoration than Jesus of Nazareth. And yet no one who ever lived has ever suffered worse insults, treachery, butchery, savagery, violence, hurt, pain, betrayal, scourging, unjust suffering than him. He's the one that 1 Peter 2.4 says, you and I come to him as the living stone, the foundation of the house of God, so that we can become a part of that, that growing temple of his eternal plan and he did it by on the cross before he said father forgive them for they know not what they do the bible tells us in first peter 2 23 exactly how jesus processed this and it is the exact model for god supplies for you when you are hurt yes we know that when Jesus was reviled as vicious words were hurled at our Lord when he was dying on Golgotha's hill. And even in those last dying hours, Roman soldiers were making, a, making sport out of dividing his garments, almost like rolling dice to tear the garments that had belonged to the Lord Jesus. The insults were vividly in front of his face. But it says that he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. How could he do this? He was entrusting himself to the Father in this context. The Son was entrusting himself to the Father who judges righteously. By entrusting the pain and the hurt and the agony of a world gone wild with rage and vicious hatred, like what we see today being aimed against the Jewish people. That very wicked current of evil and violence and inexplicable hatred for people. That wicked stream of evil Jesus absorbed it. 
in his Lamb of God body. And Hebrews 4, 14 says, in that very act, in those very dying hours on Golgotha, he was executing his role as our great high priest. Absorbing in himself the worst of the worst of the worst. And that's why you can have not only what he supplies, grace to go through that disappointment, but that you can have the assurance that in the toughest of cases, that person who's damaged somebody you love still stings you when you think about it. You can say, Lord, I, I just got stung again. How many of you have ever gotten stung by a memory of something? It didn't even happen yesterday. You've got, got stung just like, wow, that still hurts. Have you ever said that? That still hurts. <laughs> oh, praise God. You feel that. This is a way, this in the Bible, in God's plan, through the cross, through our Savior, through His conquest over sin, hell, death, and the grave, Jesus gave us a way to go beyond seven times, to go beyond 70 and times seven times. He gave us a way to reframe this so that it's not about our capacity to forgive. It's tapping into that flow of current of forgiveness that is redemptive and powerful and invincible because it's the forgiving grace of our Redeemer who is alive. I think one way to activate it, as I said, bookends of a prayer. The prayer for people that you're holding in your hand is something to use, apply. I, I think of that prayer in your hand as the like, um, you know those detergent pods where you say you just put this pod and add water and it go, does the work, right? <laughs> so you take a pod, a prayer pod, if you will, uh, and, and you can add water. That is, you can add any person you want and you can get a good, you can get a good washing machine for God going here. But then, but then... What do I do when I'm the hurt one? What do I do when I'm the wounded one? What do I do when I'm the injured one? What do I do when I'm the insulted one? What do I do when I'm the betrayed one? What am I do? What do I do when I tried and I tried and I tried and I've actually forgiven? I actually have forgiven. <laughs> but now I'm 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 beyond that and I and I know it takes more than that. Well, could you pray with me because you could and we won't put a name in this one by the way. <laughs> okay. But could you, could you pray it with me? Heavenly Father, by faith in the full conquest of Christ in his cross, I receive from you the grace to fully forgive, and you put that person's name in that blank. Read with me now. Realizing that you alone, O Lord, are my refuge and my Redeemer, I forgive fully, even as I have received full forgiveness in Jesus' name. Yes, it is humanly beyond where our brains can go. But in the very heart of the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors as we 
forgive our debtors as we do that? You mean, God, you mean, you mean you're going to forgive me in the same way that I forgive? I better get my act together. No, the Lord says, no, 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 you won't get your act together. I know you. So I'm reframing it. You've got to bring that pain to me every time and leave it there and use a prayer. I think of this as a prayer fulcrum I'm giving you. It's like a fulcrum when you're trying to get something lifted up that's too heavy. You, you, it's the fulcrum of prayer. And it lifts these giant boulders of hurt right into the arms of Almighty God. And it's, I, I think is why, even more so why, the Lord was saying to them, you see, the key even to the congregational life is not people. It's not the human capacity. The key is where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. I'm there. And if I am with you, if I'm the one you bring this to, it changes the game from your heart. Let's take a moment and quietly give to God truly a thanks that genuine forgiveness, real forgiveness, not surface, not trivializing the hurt, but real forgiveness for real people who have done real wrong repeatedly is found in no other place than at the throne of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and says, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Release your feeble human incapacity and take my yoke upon you and learn of me, be discipled by me, and you will find rest for your souls.